Amen. Thank you, Carl. <clears throat> it is good to be friends with our pastors, and Carl is an exceptional pastor. As you know, I feel a little bit responsible for helping to have him be here because I help with the search part. Not taking any credit. <laughs> no, it's seriously. It's so good to be back because I look around and I see familiar faces, and I've been you know, in this role for almost 11 years. So I've been to Israel with some of you, worked with those in leadership on search teams, just enjoy really talking with you and having good conversations. So it's a blessing to be here. And it's a good, I love that little piece on Joy Carl because it is so good to be reminded. Um, you know, we've been through a really extraordinary time. And for some of us, it's resulted that season of COVID, which I guess we're technically still in, um, has resulted in, you know, inconvenience some all the way to tragic loss on the part of others. Some of you might know that my husband of 37 years died after a battle with COVID in December of last year, and so I lost the love of my life um, in, in this particular pandemic. And, um, but I, I, I say that to you just because it's a part of me, and you need to know who I am and who's speaking before you, but also because I actually have such a strong sense of God's goodness and faithfulness to me in the midst of the loss. And so I need to say that. I need to say I have been blessed in the midst of terrible tragedy. Some of you knew him. Um, but uh, God is good, and he is good all the time. So I am with you in some of the challenges that you have likely faced during this season, whether they've been small or large. Uh, I'm with you in that. So uh, I also brought a picture of my grandchildren because well, frankly, I ingratiate myself in this everywhere I go, but this is um, Garnet, who's six, Huxley, who's two, and Briley, who's four. Garnet lives in Phoenix, and Huxley and Briley live in Omaha, six, four, and two. I have another one on the way. And my Phoenix kids were just with me this past week, <clears throat> along with my Omaha kids for most of the time, and it was pure bedlam at my house. <laughs> And I'm not kidding you when I say that. I'm like, I am surviving. Like, this is a break now. I'm going back to work, and it's a break. So um, it, was, it was crazy. But <clears throat> being a grandma is actually one of my favorite things. And any grandparents here, I always like to see kindred spirits. Because you know, like, this changes your life and your world. Nothing is ever the same. Some of us wonder, why didn't we just go straight to the grandkids? I mean, I don't know. That might have been convenient, but probably not a good <laughs> <clears throat> but it also reminds me on a daily basis of how important it is that we lead lives of faithfulness, that we continue to impart to those who are in our church, young kids and, and children and young adults, um, what it means to follow Jesus and the blessings that we have as disciples of Jesus. And it's our role. We get, to, we get to be a part of that in the lives of the kids and children that are here as well as in our families, etc. I myself, <clears throat> excuse me, I'm the product of praying parents and grandparents and a praying church that loved me uh, for good and for bad, and there was plenty of bad, I'm just saying. I wasn't always the best little kid, but uh, God has a way of redeeming those things, right? And uh, so I love the church and love the influence that can be had here, the local church, uh, not only in my own life personally, but I watch across the Midwest Conference as I visit with churches and see our youth and children, and I'm just so delighted 
uh, to be a part of churches that really value that and understand that you bring the hope of the world to these children and youth as well as people in our community who desperately need it. So thank you for all you do as a church uh, to be a beacon of Christ's love. And I'm going to take a drink here. So why don't I start with a word of prayer before I get into the scripture, if that's... Lord, we do celebrate your work in our midst. I am so grateful for Centennial Covenant Church and all that you're doing within and through them in the community. I thank you, Lord, as they have navigated challenges and also been recipients of your blessing and your faithfulness in the challenges and the joys that um, they continue to have such a strong presence here in this place. And so I pray that you would bless them. And as we look into the word that you have for us today, um, Holy Spirit, would you awaken us to new possibilities? Would you remind us of who we are and encourage us to dream new dreams? Uh, We love you, and it's so great to be gathered in your name. And so I ask Jesus that as I speak, that there will be less of me and more of you. In Jesus' name, and all God's people said, Amen. amen. Well, last time I was with you, as Carl said, was March of 2019, and ironically, I preached out of the first half of Ephesians chapter 1. So there's going to be a test. (laughs) Just kidding. Um, (laughs) I expect you've all memorized what I talked about and so forth. No, Ephesians is one of my favorite books. It's actually um, one of Paul's strongest letters about the church. And I love it, and um, the first 14 verses, like I said when I was with you last, was describing what I called in a sermon the never-ending, reckless love of, the overwhelming, never-ending, reckless love of God, which is a title I stole out of a line in a song. Today, we're going to continue on at verse 15, and my sermon title is Open the Eyes of My Heart, Lord. So I think I've got a bit of a thing going on with songs, and that really dates me, I know, for some of you who maybe never heard that song. But um, we're going to start in verse 15, where he's talking to the church and saying, listen, in light of this good news, which was just shared in those first 14 verses, in in light of what was described there, how you've been blessed with every spiritual blessing, how you've been chosen literally before the creation of the world, how God has adopted you into his family, you are his child, how you have unhindered access to the presence of God, how he's lavished the riches of his love on you and his grace, how he's guaranteed you an inheritance that will never fade, that will never perish, and how he has filled you with his Holy Spirit that you might live for the praise of his glory. That's what we talked about last time I was with you in case you needed to catch up. And he says now, for this reason, for this reason, now I want to pray for you. And he starts here in verse 15 with this. Thanksgiving and prayer, verse 15. For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all God's people, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. 
That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. The word of our Lord. Thanks be to God, yes. Paul prays, oh, that the eyes of your heart would be enlightened to see what is already yours. Now, notice what he's praying here, or maybe more accurately, I should say, what he is not praying. He's not saying, hey, I'm praying that you'll get more hope, or I'm praying that you'll get more value and riches from God. No, I'm praying that you'll you'll get more power from God. He isn't praying that. No, he's saying, you already have all of that. It belongs to you already. In fact, I'm praying that your heart will see what you already possess. Oh, God, he says, may they know the riches of your grace that they already have in Christ Jesus. And I wonder if some of us from time to time need to be reminded of just what an incredible gift that is. I think in general, for those of us who show up at church with any regularity, and even if you're new, I'm going to guess this is true, that we have a lot of information. In fact, we have far more information about who God is than we can possibly live in into or live out. If you've spent time in the church, you know a lot of gospel truths, you've experienced a lot, and I'm saying this morning is that what God is calling us to do here and what Paul is praying is that we would live in light of what it is that we already know. Now, we're quick to say things like, oh yeah, I know, I'm part of God's diverse family. I know I'm adopted by God. I'm a child of God. In fact, I know I've got the power of God available to me. I actually led that Bible study here, or I taught that Sunday school class on that. We know these things, but what Paul prays is, I know that you know it, but I pray that the eyes of your heart will be enlightened, that it will get out of here and down to here. And friends, I'm going to tell you, I think this 18 inches between head and heart is probably the most difficult, challenging part of our discipleship journey. And Paul is saying, I pray actually that what you already know will become part of your experience each and every day. There are specific things he prays for us in the center of this passage where he says, may the eyes of our heart be enlightened at a heart level so that they would know and experience these three things, their hope, their value, and their power. That's us. Our hope, our value, and our power. If you're a note taker, that's your sermon outline in a nutshell right there, hope, value, and power. So we'll start with number one, hope. The first one we'll look at is in verse 18 here. Paul is praying, oh, I pray that the eyes of their heart would be enlightened, that you might know the hope to which he has called you. 
Now, it doesn't take much to look at the world around us right now. You turn on the news and we see the sad state of affairs, the, the divisions that are happening in our culture around politics, around pandemic, around race. We see tragic things happening in Afghanistan and Haiti, for crying out loud, we can't even pass a budget. For all its advantages in our country, is it is fractured and it is polarized like no other time that I know right now. The problems are pretty significant. And so it is perhaps even the more important than we could ever imagine to know that in Christ, in Christ, he has built a bridge from no hope to hope, and our world in which we live desperately needs to know this. Would you agree? Amen. Now, here's why it's so important to know that our hope's in Christ. And I'm going to say this is true of everyone, every single person, regardless of your worldview, even your religious background, whatever it is, we're all fueled by a sense of hope. A hope at a fundamental level is like the fuel that drives our motivation for life. In fact, it's what helps us get out of bed in the morning. It's why when a person loses all hope that we become very concerned because they're in a dangerous place. We need hope. And this biblical idea of hope, it's so much more than, well, I studied really hard. I hope I get an A on that test. (laughs) It's more than, I hope I get that front parking spot in front of the groceries. It's more than saying, hey, I hope I have time to stop at Starbucks before I get to work today, though I will tell you, I think that's pretty important. Carl knows that about me. (laughs) But it's so much more than that. Biblical hope is the positive assurance of a future reality. The positive assurance of a future reality, it's saying, I know I've got something coming. (laughs) One theologian described hope as faith standing on tiptoe. In Romans chapter 8, Paul even wrote that we are saved by hope. We all need hope to keep us going. We need big hope. We need little hopes. Hope is the basic motivation and fuel for life. Now, I showed you a picture of my adorable grandchildren. They are adorable, right? Okay, just checking. (laughs) Making sure you're with me. I have hopes that the way that I grandparent, I hope that my grandkids will turn out a certain way, that they will know and have a real experience with Jesus. Now, that motivates me to grandparent in a particular way. So each of my grandchildren have grown up with me singing to them from birth the song, you know, Jesus loves me, this I know. Okay, I'm not that great of a singer, but they appreciate it anyway. They are now two, four, and six years old. They call it the grandma song, and they can sing it by heart. They can get Alexa to play it for them. They sing it in the bathtub. I get videos of them singing it throughout the house. My stepdaughter, I'm sorry, my daughter-in-law is texting me, help make her stop. I think she's kidding, but nonetheless, that's how crazy it gets. They sing that grandma song until they drive their parents crazy. But I have hopes that the truth of Jesus loves me will travel from their head to their hearts, that their hearts will be enlightened not just by the words, Jesus loves me, but by an experience of Jesus' love. Now, if you have teenagers, you may have hopes that they'll do well in school, that maybe they'll be able to 
get a scholarship and help save a few bucks as they head off to college or that one day they might be able to get out of your basement and quit living there and get out on their own. Or Maybe you have hopes that those kids will make good choices, safe choices. You may have hopes around health concerns. You may have hopes around jobs. We all hope for that paycheck at the end of the week or the month or whatever your pay period is. We have hopes, some of us, for a certain career path or a promotion at work, and that motivates you to get to work on time and do excellent work. And hope is our fuel. It is literally what motivates us. We all need hope. We are all striving for hope, for a sense of hope. And there's nothing wrong with hoping for our kids and our grandkids and hopes for our careers, maybe our health, maybe the circumstances around us, hope that things will turn out a particular way. There's nothing wrong with hoping for those things. But we have to be careful that we do not put our ultimate hope our life-giving, motivating hope in anything other than Jesus. Because anything in this world in which we put our ultimate hope is unstable, and it can lead us to grave disappointment, shifting sand. Eventually, we know everything is going to melt away except Jesus. And when Paul prays, oh, that you would know the hope that you have in Jesus, then you won't go looking in maybe perhaps 10,000 other places for that ultimate hope, but you would know that hope that comes from heaven to earth, that hope that hung on a cross so that you and I are forgiven, that hope that was raised from the dead so that you and I can enjoy newness of life both now and into eternity so that we can experience the hope of heaven because even death itself is stripped of its power. Anyone else need that word today? Hope is the anchor of our soul. It is our solid rock. It is that positive assurance of a future reality with Jesus. Oh, may the eyes of our hearts be enlightened to the hope that we have in Jesus. Amen, church? I may need a little talking back here. (laughs) Amen. Okay, the second thing that he prays here in verse 18 is that we would know our value. Now, here's what it says. He's praying that our eyes of our heart would be enlightened, that we would know the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people. If I'm totally honest, I misread this the first time I went through a cursory reading of this, and at first I thought he was talking about the riches of our inheritance, all those things that we've been promised. But actually what he's saying here is the glorious riches of his inheritance in his holy people. What is his inheritance? What does God get out of this deal, you might ask? He says his inheritance is his holy people. That's the people of God. God is saying, you are my inheritance. You are my treasure. Think of it this way, John 3.16, that Bible verse that is quoted. Everybody here probably knows it by heart. I don't think you have to be in the church to know it by heart. For God loved... Oh, thank you. I got it wrong, didn't I? For God what? For God so loved us. Now... I have to tell you, I didn't really know what it meant so loved. I'm pretty sure 
until about 30 years ago when I gave birth to my first son. And here's how it went, because I remember that day pretty, well, parts of it pretty clearly. I was having a cesarean section, so I knew when I was going to be giving birth, and I showed up at the hospital, and they put all kinds of drugs in your system, but you're awake, and you feel kind of cold and shaky and awkward. There's a blue curtain up, so you can't see any of the action behind the curtain. But all this is taking place, and all of a sudden, my son is born. And they bring him over to me to look at him, to see him. And I have to tell you, the moment that he entered the world, I had this unexpected tidal wave of love that just was like a tsunami, just came over me. I knew in that instant what it meant to so love somebody. And I looked my newborn son in the face I knew there was absolutely nothing I would not do for him. I would have given my life for him. I didn't want or need or expect anything from him in return. I just wanted him. And when they took him out of the operating room to go clean him up, so they took him down the hallway, it was like a piece of my heart went down the hall on that gurney. It's like my treasure had just left the room. I so loved my baby. And you need to know God doesn't just love you. He so loves you. You are his treasure. You are his glorious inheritance. You are the reason he sent his son to earth to die on the cross because you are the treasure he would give up his life to find. We have value and worth. It may not be intrinsic. We have value because we've been made in the image of our creator, in the likeness. We bear the family resemblance, if you will, of the creator. We're made in the likeness of God, and we have infinite value because of what he has done. I think that every person is starving to know that they're valuable, don't you? I mean, that's just a natural desire. We need to be needed. We want to be wanted. We need to be seen. We need to be noticed. We need to be acknowledged. It drives so much of what we do. It's that same root desire that might motivate someone to brag about their accomplishments or to motivate a religious person to really brag on their moral religious record, or it's the same root desire that causes people to jockey for power or for position. It's the same root value that can motivate us to do all kinds of things to get attention, maybe dress a certain way or look a certain, have a certain persona. There are all kinds of ways to say, look at me, (laughs) I'm really something, aren't I? I remember many years ago in an IHOP restaurant, that's International House of Pancakes in case they don't have them out here, and I was with my old boyfriend, which this really dates me because, as I said, I was married for 37 years. So this was like 40 years ago. I was in the not following Jesus at that time. I was kind of what I'd call the height of my spiritual rebellion. I wasn't getting my value from my identity in Christ, but yet... I wanted to be valued, and I wanted to be noticed. So I remember this like it was yesterday. I was coming back from the bathroom where I had, I was, oh, by the way, I had on this beautiful dress that I had actually made, I think. It was a dress that went down to here with these brand new knee-high boots. I thought I really was something that day. I come out of the bathroom, and I'm walking down the 
um, the aisle to where my boyfriend is sitting at the time, and I'm noticing people are looking at me, and I'm thinking, oh, yeah, I must really look good today. I hope he's noticing that people are looking at me and thinking I look pretty good, right? And I get to the seat, and I sit down, and the waitress comes up and says, um, honey, you tucked the bottom of your dress into the top of your nylons, which means I had been sashaying across the restaurant with the shortest mini skirt and high top boots that you can possibly imagine. Looking for value can drive us to seek validation in all the wrong ways. It can drive us to rebellion. It can drive us to religious legalism. It can drive us to all kinds of things. It can drive us to look at our identity based on what we can do rather than who we are in Christ. But God says, no, your value comes and that you're my treasure. Your value comes from me. You are of inestimable worth. We long for acceptance, and Paul says, oh, that the eyes of your heart would be enlightened, that you would know just how valuable you are in Christ. You have God saying, I so love you. I value you. I want you. You are my treasure and my inheritance. That's where our value and validation comes from, church, right? Amen? Amen. So we've got hope, got value and worth. The third one is power. The third thing Paul prays here in verse 19, he says, oh, that you would know the incomparable greatness of his power for us who believe. The last thing he's praying, oh, that the eyes of your heart would be enlightened, that you would know the power of God is inside of you. He said that power is incomparably great, a power so great it can't be measured. There's no scale, there's no Richter scale, no tape measure. There is no way to measure the gravity and the immensity of the power of God for those who belong to him. In the next verse, he says, it is the same power of God that was used to raise Jesus from the dead. That is the power available to us. I think sometimes we get that in the abstract, you know, um, what does it look like to have the immeasurable, incomparable power of God inside of us? We might name a thousand different things. Often the desire for power doesn't come from a great place. It does not always come from godly motivation. It can lead to the wrong place, like a need to control or manipulate. It can be the need to be right or pride, or it can be uh, coming out of our own fears and insecurities. But Paul is saying here, listen, in Christ, you already have an incomparably great power inside of you. It's the same power that brought Jesus from the grave. If you have trusted in Christ, the power of God lives in you. Now, it does not remove us from persecution or challenges or dangers or difficulty or death but it can relieve our fears and our insecurities because it makes us more than conquerors in all these things. It's not a power to work magic and escape our circumstances, but power to live in this fractured, broken world. It's power for godly living. It's the power to say no to sin in your life. You have the power to love people who are simply unlovable. You have the power to forgive people who have done the unforgivable the power of Christ. You have the power to live into your convictions. You have the power 
power to say no to sin and yes to Jesus and lay down your life every day as a sacrifice to him. You have power from God that on that last day, you will be able to get out of the grave, dust that dirt off your shoulder and stand in heaven with Jesus for all of eternity. That is the power of God that already resides inside of you. Amen, church? Amen. All other kinds of earthly human cravings for power and the achievement of that is window dressing next to the power of Christ that resides in you. He says, you don't need to go looking for power. You already have the power of God in your life. Therefore, you can be humble and you can not manipulate or try to control things because you already have the incomparably great power of the living God in your life. In Christ, we have hope. In Christ, we have great value and worth. In Christ, we have power that casts out all fear. Paul prays for us, all that you would see, all that is already yours. I know that you know it, but may the eyes of your heart be enlightened to know and experience what is already yours, the greatness of the hope he has called you to, the riches of this glorious inheritance that says you have inestimable value and worth and the incomparably great power for those who believe. I want to close up this first chapter in this way because, you know, next time I'm with you, I'll probably just move right on to chapter two, right? Um, I told you at the outset that Ephesians is more than any other New Testament letter focused on the church, Jesus and his church. But up till now, for the first 20 verses, it seems to be all about Jesus, all about what he's done for us, who we are in Christ, etc., etc. We've been talking about Jesus and what he's done, that he chose us, that he adopts us and places us in a family, that he gives us an inheritance, that he fills us with the spirit of the living God, that he gives us hope and value and worth, and he gives us this incomparably great power. Where is the church stuff you might legitimately be asking by now? You see, I think Paul was so deliberate here in starting his grand thesis on the church with one whole chapter all about Jesus. He doesn't want us to miss the point here that in the church, it is actually all about Jesus. He wants us to know the church is not a self-help program. The church is not a political organization. The church is not primarily a social gathering, though community is very important. We are not a religious club. The church is not primarily a building with programs. We are the people of Jesus who are experiencing the grace of Jesus and holding that out that grace of Jesus to people who are living in a fractured, divided, broken world that they might find hope, value, and power because we as the church exist for others, don't we? We finally get to the word church in the very last two verses of chapter one. He tells us what the church is in verses 22 and 23. And he says, And God placed all things under his feet, Jesus' feet, and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. 
So he brings it home in chapter one by telling us that this Jesus I've been telling you about, that I've been going on at length about, he is the head of the church, not some pastor, not some author or theologian, not some conference or denominational representative, not even the Pope in Rome. Who's the head of the church? Jesus. And we are his body. We are his hands and his feet to a world that desperately needs Jesus. And verse 23 says, we are the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. May we see our head Jesus and stick ever so close to him. For it is in him that we have found our value, our hope, and our power, our sense of worth, and it is to the rest of the world who desperately needs to hear and see that we are experiencing that truth, that we are commissioned to go forth. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Jesus, we do celebrate this great news. We are so thankful for all you have done for us, uh, both individually, but for us as a church as well. We trust you, we love you, we thank you that we've been blessed with every spiritual blessing. And I pray that you would more and more help us to explore the treasures that you've already given to us, God. Enlighten the eyes of our hearts to see that it's already, all of it, is ours in Christ. Jesus, may you be the center of your church. May you be the center of our lives. Would you fill us in every way? In the powerful name of Jesus and all God's people said, amen. Amen.